0: Welcome to Podcasting Stories, insights and interviews from people just like you, using podcasts to grow their business and share their message. Podcasting Stories is brought to you by Your Podcast Team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now, here's your host, Dave Spray. Welcome to the Podcasting Stories podcast. My name is David Spray, and today we're talking with Chris Anderson of Be Destined in San Francisco. Be Destined is an M&A advisory and strategic consulting firm that Chris founded more than a decade ago, but the firm is different than a typical M&A firm in that they view themselves more as a guide to helping business owners achieve their destiny, be it through selling, transferring, or growing the business. In this episode, we learn more about the firm and some great client case studies that really highlight the way the firm is unique. Chris is also interested in the ways that a podcast could amplify the message and brand of the firm. So we ended up brainstorming some different ways in which a podcast might be beneficial to the firm and different ways to justify the investment. If you have ever considered having your own podcast, this episode has a lot of great ideas on ways a podcast might be beneficial let's get to the show chris welcome to the podcast david thanks for having me today oh the the pleasure is mine i have been really looking forward to this uh, to this interview so first of all let's just start with the name of your company be destined um what's the tell us about the history of that and what what what's the significance of it uh So I'll give two parts of that answer.
1: First is just the name itself. So the name Destin really came from our clients. So when we were talking to our clients about the work that we do for them, and we were trying to rebrand our name, just kind of freshen up our brand a little bit. And we had a different company name before. And what the client said to us is, you know, Chris, the, the name just doesn't capture what you do for us. It's you are here and your team is here to guide us on this journey that we're on to get to the success we're really looking for with our business and an ultimate exit of our business. So from that really came up with the word destiny and being destined. And that's really the origin of the name. It came from our clients who just said, you know, I have a destiny to reach with my business and the folks at your company. That's what you help me do. And one of the reasons why we focus on the destination is myself, all my colleagues in the business, we're all ex-business owners ourselves. We've all built businesses, turned businesses around, taken small early stage growth companies and scaled them to to much larger organizations. So we've kind of been through the journey ourselves. We've had our own destinations that we've reached and selling a number of our businesses as well. So it just helped align us a little bit better with
0: our clients in the way that they were thinking about us. Okay. Yeah. I just, as soon as I saw the name, I really, I really liked it. I really liked it. So in what year was that, that you did the rebranding? The rebranding was just last year, actually. We just launched it okay. in December
1: of last year
0: of 2020. And that's when you started doing business as Be
1: Destined? As Be Destined. Yeah. Before that we okay. were called Assay. And Assay was all about the quality and purity of businesses. And yep. while we use the same methodology that we were using under that assay name, it just was not fully capturing the level of work that we were doing, and how we were actually really kind of co-piloting along with their clients the work that they were ushering through their organizations with their own teams.
0: Okay, so g- given that recency of the rebranding, what's the what's the response been to it? <laughs> You know, it's been
1: much better than we thought. You know, our, our clients were the ones who gave us the name. So they, they obviously love the name of it. But going out into the marketplace, both from folks who we do work with, you know, we're, we're not lawyers, we're not accountants, we don't do any of that work. But the lawyers and accountants loved it because it is more descriptive about what we do. And the prospective clients and the new clients that we've gotten since we launched the brand, it just resonated with them right away. It's yes, this is exactly what I was looking for. You know, there's other M&A advisors out there, merger and acquisition advisors, but no one has your experience and no one says that they're going to sit with me on this journey. They just want to do the deal and take a paycheck. And we want to be there with them on the journey too.
0: That is awesome. And I believe, I was just looking for the stat, I think you all have, how many companies have you all helped? Uh,
1: it's over 80, it's probably getting closer to a hundred by this time.
0: Okay. Yeah. And at any given time, how many uh, clients are you typically working
1: with? Usually about seven to nine clients at a time. We just want to make sure that we can go deep enough for the clients as they need us. Usually that starts out a little bit more deeply to begin with on the consulting side of getting them on the path to toward an exit. And then we go pretty deep and we're actually taking them through the merger and acquisition process of of actually selling their business. So we try to manage, we have a fairly small team. There's only a handful of us, but we try to manage the workload so that we can give the client the attention that they, they really need and deserve during this time.
0: Okay, that that makes sense. And what's the longest period of time you've ever worked with one client?
1: I think we're going on 11 years right now. Uh, a client that started with us. It was a result of a business that split kind of into two different companies. One of the founders, you know, kept us as, or brought us in as a consultant to help them kind of create their roadmap for their growth on their own. And we're actually in the process, and now it is, again, almost 11 years later, and we're in the process of, of selling that company. We have a number of offers on the table. So that's about as long as we've gone. Typically, our engagements are are usually in the two to three year range when we're getting a company ready for a transaction. And we do have some clients who come to us that are, their business is really well run. They're ready to go to market right away. And we can get through those engagements, you know, certainly within the six to nine months to be able to close a transaction for them.
0: Okay. Do you ever have a client that comes to you, that you know, engages you kind of for the pre-sale stuff, but then as they go through that process, they decide not to sell? Does that ever happen?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yep. In, in fact, the one that's been with us for 11 years, the original intention was they were going to sell earlier, but they had, they had restructured the business so that they, they didn't need to sell it. You know, They got themselves out of the day-to-day operating role, and you know, we were instrumental in making sure the business was ready to be able to attract that type of a talent, and they saw that there was a good story here of how the company could continue to grow under their leadership. So yeah, we, we, we love having that, that, that issue. Quite honestly, it means that we've done our job well.
0: Right. That's, that's great. So how, within the M&A space, how do you describe to people like how you're different from other M&A firms?
1: Sure. So a, a couple ways. One is, you know, Every one of us, we have been business owners. Every one of us has gone through the process of selling our own companies. So not okay. only do we understand what the process is like from a, a technical perspective, but you understand the emotional journey. And mm-hmm. what most M&A advisors talk about is the money. Oh, you want this valuation. Great, I can get you that valuation. And this was a, a, a situation that I had the first couple businesses that I was part of that we sold. You know, the investment bankers, the folks were really focused on, let's get the deal done and get as much money for you. But what right. they never asked us was, hey, what's going to happen after this deal is done? And will you guys be happy with that? And the first transaction, we just saw a big misalignment in the culture, but the investment bankers pushed that that transaction through. So part mm. of what we focus on is, yes, we can get you the valuation, but what we want you to do, because we're focused on your destiny, is what's that story you're going to tell after the deal is done because you're going to have Mm -hmm. to communicate with your employees. You're going to have to communicate with your customers. If you have suppliers, other folks who are kind of in your orbit of, of the work that you do, you've got a lot of people to talk about this story. And then after the deal is done and, you know, say you're at a summer barbecue, you're at a holiday party with family, you know, people ask you about your business. And when you say, Oh, I've sold it, they're going to ask you about the story.
0: Mm -hmm. And so
1: often we hear, well, the money was great, but, and what we like to focus on is the money was great and you know, this was what it enabled us. We got to be part of a larger organization. So my people got more benefits or you know, they were able to, to get more learning and development because it was a much more mature organization. They had the capital that we needed to help us grow faster. So what's all that story that goes around what happens after the sale, not just getting the sale done. And Mm -hmm. most M&A folks focus on get the deal done and I walk out the door. We want to make sure the client's satisfied afterwards that we're actually working through the integration. So Mm -hmm. that's the part that makes us different on the transaction side. But what also makes us different is we put a consulting process together that is a very methodical process that essentially evaluates a company through the eyes of a buyer, not through the eyes of the seller, but through the eyes of a buyer. And when we do consulting with our clients, we're running through a very specific framework that has six layers of strategic assets that we're trying to make sure are secure and transferable to an acquirer. And there's six different areas of risk that we assess to make sure those items are managed to mitigate really well. I've not seen any other MA advisor, whether they're investment bank or business broker or other, that has a methodology like this that they could actually prep the company in advance through the buyer's eyes, not through the seller's eyes. Of just make me pretty so that I feel good when I go
0: to market. Yep. And is that your assess, design, evaluate methodology?
1: Uh, yeah. It's it, yeah. We rebranded that so it's really oh you chart, did propel. yeah it's it's Chart Propel and Saver now. So it's you know Chart where you are today. You know it's Propel to whatever that destination is you're looking for. So it it is about securing those assets. It is about managing and mitigating those risks, so that
0: again you can
1: savor the destination once you reach it, and whether that's so, the next level of growth
0: or us selling the business. So, chart propel savor, savor exactly. That's awesome. I uh, I like that. I don't know. Have you ever listened to John Warlow's podcast, Built to Sell Radio? I have not. So it's one of my all-time favorite podcasts, and he every week he interviews an entrepreneur who had a successful exit at some point in the past and they're usually within like one to two years of selling and john's done this for five years so he's got you know 250 episodes or so and i think i've listened to all of them and so i feel like vicariously i really kind of understand And the reason i bring it up is you really hit on what was a big issue with probably 20 percent of his guests have tremendous regret once they sold it. Exactly. And often, and oftentimes it's around cultural stuff. You know, they, they told us they're going to keep the team intact. And right a week after selling, they fired everybody. Or they, you know, they, they shut down the manufacturing facility that they promised to keep open and they moved it somewhere else. And so it tends to fall under what I would call this category of, like you had mentioned, cultural uh, fit. Absolutely. It's where most deals either fall apart
1: or destroy value after they're done is because expectations are not clearly communicated and set appropriately. And it's one of the reasons, one of the things that also makes us a bit different is about a third of the clients that we take on, we end up doing an internal transition. There are ways to actually sell the business to key employees to managers to family members to provide liquidity for either founding shareholders or founders who want to exit the business but let the next generation take over. So one of the things we don't have to do with every client is sell them to a third party. You know, we like doing internal transitions because that team also needs help on how do they continue to grow and scale the organization so they typically stay with us as a client once that transition is is complete. And even that takes a number of years. You know, if it's I'm taking over from mom and dad, you know, that they started the business, you know, there's a lot I have to learn that mom and dad did over the last 30 years. Or if I'm the manager who's in my 30s or 40s, yes, I've been part of this business for, you know, extended period of time, but I still have a lot to learn. And, you know, I might not have the same skill set as the owner I'm taking over for. So how do I have to rebuild a team around me? So it's really kind of understanding all those different components of, you know what can make a successful exit, and it doesn't have to be you sell the company to some you know nameless, faceless you know third party that you know is just going to destroy what you have built for all these years.
0: Mm. I had a really interesting guest on my podcast. I think it was my episode that released last week. Uh, her name is Lori Barkman, and yeah. she is in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh. Yeah. and right. she has a she has a podcast called Succession Stories, and she had a guest on. Who was an M and A attorney who had done like a couple hundred deals, and his approach was more on the internal transfer. And I want to say that like ninety percent of the deals he did were internal transfers, and it was really fascinating because he basically kind of developed like a sub niche in this area where he had really become a big fan of this because he said, "Look, your 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 expenses are way lower." The due diligence is way simpler. The cultural fit concerns you have, you know, typically you're you're much more comfortable with because you're selling it to your team. And I want to say that even most of those internal transfers were not intergenerational transfers. They were selling it to uh, a management team. Exactly. And so yeah, so that's interesting that that's a, a meaningful percentage of the deals that you do.
1: It is. I mean, one of the things that I think is important for an M and A advisor to do, and for any business owner that's evaluating them, is to understand any transaction has pros and it has cons that come with it, and weighing those things are important. And that's really for us. It's the first step when any client wants to sell the business. We start with strategy review. It's here's your different options, including the internal options as well. We lay out the pro and cons, you know, the pros and cons to each of these. To let the business owner decide i don't want these types of transactions i am willing to consider these you know one of our best successes was with a client that we went through this process he came down to say okay well i either want my team to buy me out because that's kind of what he had done he had grown up in this business you know it spent 30 years in it ended up being ceo and the sole shareholder and you know he had given some shares to some key employees he wanted them to step up and say, "You know what? I want to take over and and, and run this business next, and let's work out a, a deal here." And what he realized very quickly is that the team wasn't didn't have the appetite to be a business owner. You know, in terms mm. of everything that that encounters, in terms of you know personal guarantees for leases and bank loans and things like that, to truly be on the hook for owning the business. So he decided he was going to sell the business to a. Uh, a very culturally aligned strategic, but he had to go through that process first. He had to evaluate all these other options. He shut down a lot of them, wanted to consider two, and he left it up to his team. And the team is the one who you know wanted to stay with the business, but they did not want to be owners. So it's good to know that you have that as an option. And it's something that I think everyone should be considering is, you know, is there a team here and a way to actually structure a transaction that can be very tax efficient and very affordable for everybody
0: that's really interesting because that it probably was really good that he went through that exercise like you mentioned because if they haven't gone through or had not gone through that, then the team might have had some resentment that that hey you know why didn't they give us a chance to buy the business but uh, having gone having gone through that and letting them come to the conclusion that they weren't going to sleep well at night with millions of dollars of personal guarantees on the line.
1: Having to go home and tell your spouse, you know, that, uh, Hey, I'm mortgaging the house and we're taking on all this risk, but trust me, it'll work out. Sometimes that that works and you get buy in at home and and, and sometimes you don't. And, you know, it, it, it all depends on your specific circumstances. And, you know, if it's something that makes sense for, for each family. So it's not right for everybody.
0: Okay. No, that, that makes sense. So I, I love case, case studies. Tell me of, give me an example of a case study that maybe you felt like your firm made like the biggest impact, either oh, financial or. For, okay. Got a
1: great one. Awesome. Um, and in fact, I had a call early this morning, owner just referred a, another client, he's referred quite a few clients to us because we, we, we helped him out quite a bit. So this was a client that was actually they were a consulting client of ours, not looking to sell the business at the time, but they were always entertaining calls, which we always think makes sense for business owners to take the calls if people approach you, you know, find out what they're thinking about and you know, at the very least, if you if you like them, stay in contact and build a relationship. Mm-hmm. And this gentleman had taken a call one day and it was someone that they, they had gotten to know each other over an extended period of time. And, you know, we were working with them as a consulting perspective. They've, they know our, our full framework in terms of the, building the strategic assets and managing the risks. And, you know, when we said, OK, well, let's help you prepare a presentation for your, your conversation. And, and the first response was, no, 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 we, we don't need to do that. They know us. We know them this is just about talking about the strategy for growing the business going forward. So they have that meeting and then they got an offer after that and they were very disappointed with the offer. So they brought me back in and said, Chris, this is the offer and it doesn't seem to make sense for us to sell the business for, for this little money. And I'm going to tell you it's a little money, but it was around $50 million. So it's a little, but you know, it's all relative. Sure. this, This happened to be a fairly large company. Um, so it was about a $50 million offer. And I said, okay, well, let's do another meeting. Let's bring the buyer back. And this buyer was extraordinarily gifted and talented at building companies. They had built you know, billion, multi-billion dollar companies before, had done lots of acquisitions all over the world. So this was not someone who didn't know how to evaluate a business at all. The founders okay. of the business were mostly in their you know, 60s and 70s, um, so had been around quite a long time. And I drew this specific framework that we use. It's kind of our our secret sauce. We have the proprietary framework that, again, says, okay, here's all the different types of risks that you assess in a business as a buyer. Can we look at this through a buyer's lens? And I went through all these different risks. And I showed the different multiples in the industry. So one thing to understand about valuation multiples you know, everyone talks about an average range or a mid-range in, in a particular industry. So you sure. might hear someone say, hey, my, my industry, we're, we're six to eight times multiple. Well, that's a fairly tight range. The truth is, if I went and dug into that industry, I could find multiples probably as low as two and a half or three and as high as maybe 12 or 15. So there's a mm-hmm. big range of multiples here. So I, I drew these on, on the large whiteboard um, in this conference room for the buyer. And I said, you are pricing for these particular risks down here. And it was risks around potential liabilities, lawsuits, things like that, and some balance sheet items. And the the buyer said, you're absolutely right. We we are pricing for that. I'm like, good, because those risks are real. I understand why you're concerned about those. I said, however, almost all of these risks are going to be allocated. And the purchase agreement, that's where we spend most of the time allocating risk is in the purchase agreement and all the schedules right. that go along with that. So if if, you're, if we're allocating the risk, I said, what you really need to do is think about what, what are the capabilities that you're actually buying? And in this case, you were buying a brand that was very well known and very well respected. You were buying a market niche that you did not currently do business in that was very valuable and you needed to grow into. You were buying, buying a service territory that was very different from where you were currently operating. And they had some systems and methodologies that were very unique that allowed them to be more efficient and effective for their customers than you are in the industry is in general. So when I said, these are the key assets that you're really buying, and if you don't pay a premium for these, someone else will, and he said, you know what, Chris, you're right. This was in the meeting. You are right. And he walked out of there, put an offer on the table without going back and running more numbers. He just said, here's our offer and improve that by 25% or 50%. So another 25, wow. another $25 million is what we closed that transaction at. So we closed it at 75 million because he saw the methodology makes sense. Assessing risks is important because that's part of every M&A deal. And the fact that we had gone through that process ahead of time, looking at it through the buyer's eyes of what will they think is a risk. Not what does an owner think of a risk. If an owner thinks of the risks of something they go to sleep with every day, but a buyer does not want to buy the risks you go to sleep with every day as an owner. Sure. What they really care about is what's your secret sauce? How do you do business? So what are those things that we're buying that will help us do our business better? And when we actually showed him that, and it was worth another $25 million to him,
0: that was a big deal for our client. I bet, especially since I'm guessing your fee was less than twenty-five million dollars. It was not that much. I, I would have been happy to
1: take a significant portion of that, but no, no, no. We 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 got our fair share of that. And the, the, the buy the client was just so thrilled with that. Again, he's referred quite a, a bit of work to us and and it's been it was a great transaction. It was the right organization for him to sell to. Um, it's given them capabilities that they wouldn't have had on their own. But at the same time, you know. They brought a lot of capabilities and ways of doing things that, that made the buyer that much better and that it was appreciated and paid for.
0: Yep, I can, I can understand that. So I, I, I based on prior conversations we've had, I sense that you just really have a passion for what you do. And I mean, almost a, a calling, if you will. What is it, what, what are some of the things that you just love about the relationship you have with your clients? I think most of it for me. So I, I actually
1: grew up in family business. So my, my dad had a distribution business. My mother had a retail business. So you know, from the time I was very small, it was just business was just all I was kind of exposed to and family businesses in particular. So, you know, entrepreneurs fascinate me and being mm-hmm. able to start a company or being able to take over and grow a company to a, a point in time. Again, I got lucky early in my career, all my colleagues too. I mean, we were taught how to grow and scale companies. When I look back at my parents who you know constantly pivoted their businesses based on what was happening in the marketplace, but they didn't go to business school. No one ever trained them in some corporation of how to you know, be an entrepreneur. And for me, that's what gives me the joy. And I think for the rest of the team, it's what we really love is, listen, we were trained on how to do this. We're going to bring some of the methodologies, some of the discipline that we were taught on how to grow and scale a company, how to hold people accountable, you know, how to have fun at this. You know, How to not have to wear every hat yourself anymore, that you need to share those hats and those responsibilities with other people. And again, you asked the question earlier, do, do, do clients ever come to, come to us and say, hey, we're having so much fun, we don't want to sell it? Yeah, that means we did our job. It means we got the business to a point where you could actually enjoy yourself. That you don't have to just be working in the business. You can be working on it. You can spend less time, you know, in the business. You can spend more time family, charitable interests, whatever is important to
0: you. That's what we take joy in. Sure, yeah, that's I, I can relate to that. My clients have always been entrepreneurs, and I'm a long time a client of strategic coach, which is an entrepreneurial kind of development program, training, coaching. And one of Dan Sullivan's observations, the founder is that he said, some people go about their structure and their business the wrong way. Dan says, first ask yourself the question, who do you want to be a hero to? And then go ask yourself, what, what service do I want to provide to those people? Yep and it sounds like it sounds like that uh, i mean for at least one of these clients and i'm guessing a lot more you were their hero weren't you
1: we i don't like to say that we're heroes we we are guides you know if you look at our website we love guiding people again to the destination that they say that they want to reach. So this is not our journey. It's theirs. And we get joy and satisfaction out of making sure that people accomplish.
0: Very, very well said. And I'm going to push back just a little bit. I bet you if I went and surveyed some of your clients and I asked them, was Chris or his team a hero in your transaction? I bet a significant number would say yes. So I appreciate your modesty, but I'm going to just push back a bit on that if you don't mind. So do I, do I need to change my t-shirt and get a little F on my... <laughs> that's, that's awesome. So before we kind of switch gears, was there anything about your business that we haven't discussed that you think relevant to mention?
1: Well, in terms of just the the size businesses and the industries that we work with, so sure. Our, you know, our our clients are you know typically ten million of revenue up to about five hundred million, and okay. what we're really looking for is have they built enough of a team and enough cash flow that'll gives them some freedom to invest back into the business to accomplish what they really need to accomplish. So one, we want to make see. sure the business is, is sellable, but most things that you have to do to get the business to a point where it's sellable. Take some level of investment. It's usually around people, systems, or processes, and and those things all cost a little bit of money. So, you know, we, right. we don't deal with turnarounds. We don't deal with you know, small businesses. So, we're we're not for everybody. You know, areas where we actually shine. Even though we're based in San Francisco, we, we are not a technology company. There's there's lots of M and A firms who focus on software companies and. You know, that, that's not our, our area of expertise, even though we're here in, in, in San Francisco. We focus a lot on professional service businesses, on light manufacturing, wholesale distribution companies, uh, a lot of construction and, and specialty contracting businesses. So you know, we're, we're very varied in our personal experiences as, as owners and operators, and we only take on clients that we know that we can actually help add that strategic value. So it, it's something that, you know, not everyone who comes to us. Can be a client of ours because we don't necessarily have the
0: expertise, and we're very open and honest about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the last thing you want is to sign up someone and then three months later realize it's not the right fit. It doesn't work for anybody. Yeah, if
1: if they're too small, if they don't have the cash flow, if they're too big and of an organization, we we again we're a small team. There's only a handful of us, so you know, we couldn't take on a billion dollar company and make a massive impact either. So sure, sure, focus on those companies where we can have that they're really looking for. And again, you know, to use your words, David, to, to maybe be their hero.
0: (laughs) That's, that's (laughs) awesome. Yeah. It also seems like when you start getting into the billion dollar plus companies that they seem to be more focused just on the dollars and cents rather than cultural fit and things like that, because it seems like you've got you know, more shareholders, maybe outside investors, whereas those smaller companies, you know, oftentimes it's, you know, at least from what yeah, I've seen, our- just you know, a single shareholder or a family that owns the business.
1: A family or, you know, two or three founders who, who started the business together. And you know, th- th- those are the people we like to work with. I mean, if you have a board that is just a third party board, you know, invest in institutional capital. And th- those are not the best clients for us because all they're really looking for is that return on capital, and yep. they're not as concerned about all the other cultural elements and things that are as important to a business owner who has spent, you know, typically years, decades, often building their company. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Well, thank you for for adding that clarification. Ten to five hundred million. Light manufacturing, professional services, construction. Really, you also know, just it's, it's yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like really just a lot of, you know, kind of backbone of America type uh, businesses.
1: It is, you know, and it's one of the things that I think we all find fascinating about it is, you know, the the types of businesses that people start, like, well, of course, some, someone had to do that. You know, th- there was an opportunity and they, they, they saw a little niche and were able to create, you know, you know, I look at my parents that. Basically, they were at at first just trying to put food on the table and a roof over our heads, and you know, clothes on the the backs of their kids. So mm-hmm. a lot of businesses start that way, and and they grow over time, and they grow into something you know provides for lots of other families as well, and and, and that's why we we enjoy working with entrepreneurs.
0: Sure, no, it it uh, it comes through loud and loud and clear uh, from talking to you, and and I love the the guide term you use because it also demonstrates a. You know, a humility in your approach, and that, you know, that this is really the client's uh, success that you're just helping to amplify or fine tune, but it's really, it's, it's, it's all about the client, right? It's, it's, it's
1: their journey.
0: It's our job to tell them, you know, what's
1: the best route to get there. How can they avoid the pitfalls? Cause of course, everyone thinks it's a straight road and it's not, you know, there's swamps along the way, there's uh, alligators, there's all kinds of things going on. There's you know people jumping out of the woods at you and you've always got to be prepared as a business owner. And, and, and our job is to help them be prepared.
0: Yep. That makes sense. That makes sense. Well, what I'd like to do now is, sh- is shift gears and talk a bit about podcasting, if that sounds good. That sounds fantastic. So, and I appreciate uh, some of the prior conversations we've had. And uh, you, given the website redesign you've gone through and some other initiatives, You know, we really just came to know each other pretty recently. So as, as I under- understand it clearly that in your kind of sh- you know, short to medium-term strategic plan, or certainly at least your 2021 plan, podcast was not, was not part of that. And that, that there may be an opportunity to consider that in the future, but it's really not in the, the short term. So I wanted to just preface that just so listeners, and then also just for your comfort that the purpose of this section is not to try to convince you to have a podcast next week. Fair enough. Fair enough, not next week, but next year for sure okay so so when we spoke last time, you know we i I brainstormed kind of some different ways you could use a podcast, and to be honest i don't I don't think I even made notes of that. I have so many of these conversations, and it seems like I have you know dozens of different ideas that uh, that just kind of run together, so let me just ask you. Since you probably had fewer podcasting conversations the last two weeks than I have, what what were some of the aspects of our conversation that intrigued you about how a podcast could be a useful uh, marketing tool or an amplification tool for your business? Yeah, so
1: again, two parts of our business. One is you know, on the M a side for taking companies to market. It's we have a lot of client successes we do and being able to mm-hmm. share those successes and the lessons learned and as we go through a transaction and we've got a couple of them that we're working through right now we learn something every day you know whether it's something that's going on in the a shift in the marketplace whether it's you know how buyers are actually evaluating companies potentially differently just different experiences that sellers are have are having as they're going through the process. So th- there's a lot of information for us to share literally on a daily or almost weekly basis for sure. Um, so that's on the m and side of just what are some of those successes? What are the pitfalls that you're, you know, what's the journey that people are going through As we're actually going through this deal, it's, you know, okay, if we sign someone up to go through a process with us, it'd be great to have that podcast to say, okay, here, here's what the kickoff is like. Here's what to expect in the very beginning. Here's what to expect as you're going through due diligence and we're writing the memorandums and all these other steps in the process that we go through, how we start screening and evaluating potential buyers, how we then start screening offers and go through due diligence with buyers. So there's a lot of information for us to share just about the process because most people we do this with are only ever going to do it once. Most yep. of, our, of our clients are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, and they're only ever going to do this once. So this is the, the company that they spent you know decades building. They want to sell it, might stay with it for a period of time or might stay with it after they sell it or just leave, but they're not going to do this. So sharing this information would be very important.
0: And these yeah, it's really, it. it's, oh, I was just going to say it's, It seems like for many of these businesses, that not only does does the bulk of their personal wealth reside in the business, but that it'll be the biggest financial decision they've ever made. Right?
1: It it is. Other than where does the money go afterwards? Who's who's inheriting what? In fact, one one deal that we're working on right now, the the founder said, you know, we don't have any kids, we want to sell this business, and we're going to live a great life, and we're going to die with about $1,000 in the bank, because we're going to spend every (laughs) penny of it. So, Awesome. Yeah, whatever your goal is, that's absolutely fine. And the other part of the podcast, too, is on really kind of the consulting part of what does it take to be prepared for this whole journey? You know, what is the journey actually like? how do I actually understand what these strategic capabilities are that the Destin team are always talking to me about? How do I learn from other people's experiences of how they've kind of rebuilt and secured these assets um, to prove that they were actually transferable to buyers? And what are the things I need to do as a business owner to really manage and mitigate on a daily basis, just so I can focus on the things that I really got into business for, which is not managing risk, but going out and serving customers or serving clients
0: hmm And so it sounds like your thinking is that a podcast would give you a platform to share this uh, information and success stories with other advisors, potential clients, other centers of influence. Does that sound about right? Uh, absolutely. And, and including
1: having those centers of influence on the podcast to talk about their role in it too. Because Mm-hmm. Again, you know, we're, we're the guide or the, kind of the quarterback of this whole thing, if you want to use a sports analogy. But we're, we're the guide, but it takes other people to go through this. So we're not CFOs. We're not lawyers. We don't do taxes or anything like that. So, you know, we can take the company to market, you know, get the valuation where we need it to be. We need everyone else as part of that ecosystem to to make sure that the client is truly prepared and can get the deal done that they want. hmm
0: no, that makes sense. And you know, it struck me as you were talking, I'd mentioned uh, John Warlow's Built to Sell podcast. It's interesting, the people he interviews are people who he does not know and who, who, who he had nothing to do with the transaction. And it struck me that that you could perhaps take a page out of his book and and follow kind of a similar path through telling their story, but you're telling it with more personal knowledge of the story and if you if you have a chance and you listened to a couple of this podcast i think you'd Got get it. a sense of what i'm talking about because the because you know when these transactions go well and you know it's been a couple of years since the transaction happened and you can kind of you know, check back in with and, you know, lessons learned, you know, what do they wish they'd done differently? You know, what worked well about the process? You know, what they're up to now, you know, if they could do it all over again or, you know, what might they do differently? And I think you may find those, those stories to be really, really interesting, not only for the seller who maybe kind of misses being in the middle of the action, being able to, 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 to relive the experience, but that kind of case study format may be really helpful for your for your listeners yeah so
1: i love that idea
0: well, good. I, I, uh, there's a gr- great Seinfeld episode where George uh, says something like funny, and everybody laughs. So he immediately leaves the apartment, you know, because he quote wanted to leave on top, you know, leave with a high point. So, so if I was really clever, I, I would just conclude the the podcast uh, abruptly right there. But everyone drops the mic these days, don't they? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think I think that's how it goes. So I had just a couple more questions uh, as sure. we wrap up. So the first one is I promised you a curveball question. Okay. So here's the curveball question. So and I borrowed this from another podcaster. So if you could go back in time and give some advice to your twenty two, twenty five, twenty eight year old self, what advice might you give to yourself with the expertise you now have?
1: I love that question. And I have thought about this actually, because my kids ask me, you know, so did you always know you Mm. wanted to be doing M&A? I I, I will tell you, I knew nothing about M&A. This was never a career choice for me. I wanted to build businesses. And what I would tell my 25-year-old self is watch and learn how to build companies that are built to sell, because one, there's a lot of money in it. But two, the process will actually help you accelerate and build more profitable and healthier companies and more sustainable businesses. And I wasn't getting that early in my career. I thought it was just very operational and tactical, but there was a much bigger picture here of building equity value.
0: Sure. Yeah. And it turns out that a business that is more sellable tends to be more valuable and more fun to operate. It's, it's an irony, right? It's kind of like the people, the people have a house, that, uh, they get it all fixed up to sell. And then after they get it fixed up, they're like, wow, why are we moving from this place? This place is awesome.
1: I've done that. It's like, why didn't
0: we we live here? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I know. I, I love that. So as we wrap up here, was there anything else about podcasting in general you want to talk about? It sounds like you've, you've kind of crystallized your, your thinking. So I'm not going to ask you any other questions, but there's always a kind of a live consulting piece to this. Did you have any questions for me as it relates to, you know, to podcasting and, you know, having a potential podcast?
1: Yeah. So is, is it best to have, you know, a show where you've got, you know, it's a 30 minute or hour show that you're doing all the time, or is there an audience out there for doing you know, smaller kind of bite-sized chunks that maybe it's five, 10, 15 minutes to be able to provide information to people in smaller chunks?
0: So that's a great question. And I'm a pretty avid podcast listener. And so what I've done is I've built my podcast, sort of based on the podcast I enjoy listening to. And for me, like, like, uh, built to sell, for example, that podcast, his interviews are typically 45 minutes to an hour. Okay. And, uh, they're pretty consistent. When I think about Tim Ferriss's podcast, I mean, they're one to two hours or hour and a half to two hours. So, I, from my perspective, I can tell you that all the episodes, 95% of the episodes we do are kind of in that same 45 minutes to an hour, kind of similar format we haven't really mixed in anything but that being said i learned something really interesting myself i did uh i was i currently host three different podcasts two of them release weekly one releases monthly and and a year ago i had just one monthly podcast and it and what happened is i got a little bit behind on on a couple of the podcasts you know normally you try to have three to four episodes with what they call in the can. I think it relates to the old days of film, you know yep. actually going okay. into a can yeah. and uh and I just kind of caught myself behind. I think I had some guests that had to you know reschedule, so I just did a monologue that was like a imputed q and a. I just thought about like all the questions I'd received over the last year, and I just wrote them down, and I did a short uh episode. It was like one of them was 15 minutes for one podcast and the other was 20 minutes. And I really did it just to have something to publish. But I had the most, maybe the most positive feedback from those two podcasts than I had with any of the others. So, so I say that because that's become kind of a new idea that we're sharing with clients that, you know, consider about every 10th episode to have one where you are just. Doing a shorter monologue with a kind of an imputed Q and A, and the the response was really good. Like I said, I've only done it twice, and I did both episodes like back to back. I just I jotted the notes down, I hit record, end ended it, you know, did the next one, and so I think there is some some power to that in the the Q and A. Beyond that, as far as like, and I know there's certainly podcasts out there that have like, you know, five minute kind of quick hit, you know, one idea. And they certainly are a place for those. I just haven't really explored that. I know that's kind of a long-winded answer to your question. Did that did that help? Oh,
1: absolutely. Yeah, I, I hadn't done the research to figure out what's typical and customary, especially in, in business settings. So it's very helpful.
0: Yeah, and, I, and the conclusion I've come to is that... Because – and I've learned this from other podcasters – that better to have a one-hour podcast that a listener has lost interest in after 30 minutes than to have a a 60-minute podcast that you artificially – Constrained to thirty minutes, and then have your listeners wanting more, wishing, wishing that it lasts longer. So I tend to err to the side, and that's the beauty of having your own podcast. It's like your own radio show, except you have no constraints. So, um, and, and the other thing too is I find a lot of the value of the podcast isn't so much from the listener; it's from my guest being able to tell their story. And so, if I had a guest who probably the longest episode I've done was probably an hour and 10 minutes. But if I had a really interesting guest and he really was just kind of getting into the story and it went two hours, I'd be tempted to either run the whole two hours with just a preface or break it into two pieces. Okay, Because yeah, when you think about it, there's no, it's not like, you know, at least for our service, you know, we don't charge our clients like by the minute or anything like that. So there's no real harm in going long, if you will. At least that's my thinking on it. Great. I appreciate that. Very helpful. Good. Did you have any other questions uh, uh, about no, podcasts? Okay. Well, my last question is just, if people want to reach out to you, uh, how should they do so? Uh, do you accept LinkedIn requests? Is there uh, an email or website you'd like to direct people to?
1: Yeah. So people can go to our website. It's Be destined. That's the word dot dcom Uh, They can also send me an email directly. It's Chris Anderson and Anderson is spelled A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N at BDestin.com. There's no space. There's no dot or anything. It's just Chris Anderson at BDestin.com. Happy to talk to anybody.
0: That sounds great. And do you accept LinkedIn requests? Absolutely. Okay. And so Chris Anderson in San Francisco, they can probably find you.
1: I think I am Chris Anderson SF or something like that. So,
0: yes. Okay. That's awesome. Well, Chris, this has really been fun, and I really have enjoyed uh, some of the things I've learned about the M A world through your lens. So, I really appreciate you taking the time to to talk to me. I appreciate your questions. You led me down a wonderful
1: path, and since I love going down paths and being guided, you were a wonderful guide today.
0: Well, I would say that's probably the the highest compliment I could be given is to 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 be called a a good guide. A, a decent guide. Really? Appreciate well, super. It. Thank, you. Thank you very much, David. Oh, uh, you're welcome. Well, hey, you have a great day. Great. Thanks. David. Yeah. And there we have it. Another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at www.podcastingstories.com. This podcast is brought to you by your podcast team. If you have ever considered having your own podcast, head over to www.podcastingstories.com yourpodcast.team to learn more about how they can help you. That's it for this episode. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next time.